We stay together, we survive. What we've got here is failure to communicate. To communicate. Stick together. In the name of unit cohesion. Cohesion. You are listening to the Cohesion Podcast. Actionable tips from internal comms leaders on how to improve your company's employee experience. Hello, and welcome to the Cohesion Podcast. This episode features an interview with Wendy Pfeiffer. Wendy is a CIO of Nutanix, a global leader in cloud software with a market cap north of $7.5 billion. Prior to Nutanix, Wendy led technology teams for industry makers like GoPro, Yahoo, and Cisco Systems. She has received numerous awards and accolades, including Enterprise CIO of the Year, Top 100 Technology Executives, Top 100 Women in Tech, Top 10 Tech CIOs, and Top 50 Most Powerful Women in Technology. On this episode, Wendy shares how technology is reshaping company culture in a hybrid world, how she successfully automated many underlying functions during the pandemic, and why knowledge workers have the ability to learn anything we set our minds to. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Simpler, the modern intranet software that simplifies the employee experience. If you are looking to increase employee engagement, collaboration, and connectivity, Simpler is your answer. Learn more at simpler.com. So please enjoy this interview between Wendy Pfeiffer, CIO of Nutanix, and your host, Amanda Berry. Well, Wendy, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Amanda. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I want to first start off in getting a little bit of understanding about your background in IT. How did you get interested in IT and what was your first job? I wasn't initially interested in IT. My very first job was for Ames Research Center. I was in the student space biology research program, and I was a researcher working on cockpit displays of traffic information. It was super cool and super geeky. There wasn't much money in that. I also didn't have the math skills to, you know, truly be an astrophysicist. But while I was at that job, I was introduced to large-scale computer systems and large-scale networks. And at the time, um, this is back in the 1980s, there were not as many personal computers out there. So for me, this was just a revelation. And, and although I was interested in science and I was interested in math, what I was really interested in was these large-scale systems. And so I just always, after that, sought out opportunities to learn about um, them, to be around them, to have something to do with large-scale networks networks, large-scale data centers, and so on. That's great. I want to circle back to your interest in IT, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but before I move on, would you just tell me a little bit that make that connection and jump to your current role as CIO at Nutanix? So I've worked um, quite a few places as I my career progressed. I was really interested in having enough authority 
to be able to follow through on some ideas that I had for organizational structure and organizational design, for uh, building out ecosystems of various vendor technologies. And so I knew, first of all, that I wanted to lead, that I wanted to be in charge of the organization. And then secondly, that I wanted to work in an environment that was interesting to me technically. And so um, I came from, just before coming to Nutanix, I was CIO at GoPro, uh, the action camera uh, makers. And I I worked there because I was really interested in the tech and it was super fun. And then we were users of Nutanix technology at GoPro. And I was just so fascinated with this, um, you know, kind of once in several decades technology that I wanted to be around it. And so when the then CEO reached out and said, hey, we need our first CIO, we've just gone public. Um, and we need, you know, someone in that chair to move us forward. I said yes, and and that was almost five years ago now. You mentioned you are at the Space Biology Research Program at NASA Ames Research Center. And I, if I'm right, you were a junior in high school. Is that right? I was. I was a baby. I was a young. I'll tell you, I have my favorite story working there was I was very shy and I was a high school kid and I was I left high school um, every day to go to this place. And so I had to like study on the side, you know, and, and so I would take my lunch. My mom made my lunch, you know, it was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, an apple and some milk, you know, and I would take my lunch. And I went out to this construction site where they were building the 40 by 80 by 120 wind tunnel. And um, I would sit inside this just giant building and sort of disappear in the shadows. And um, every now and then, one of the visiting, you know, pilots or researchers would come and kind of sit out there with me and have lunch because it was in the shade, just kind of private. That's how I met some really interesting people like uh, Chuck Yeager, for example. I met Chuck Yeager too. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you really? That's so cool. So, I mean, how did you meet him? Yeah, no, I, I went to the Indy 500 and he was one of the, the guys in the pace cars. And so I got, got to have dinner with Chuck Yeager, but it was around the same time as well. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, I was just a nerd, you know, and, um, and, and just fascinated with these systems. And I think, you know, if I had to look back on what's driven me my whole career. It's just curiosity. I want to know how things work and why things work. And especially the more complex and large the system is, I want to I want to be around it enough to know. I remember in that same vein, one of my first jobs was working as a cook for a nearby restaurant where they made these amazing fluffy Dutch baby uh, breakfast dishes. And none of us could figure out, like, how do they do that? How do they do that? So I got a job there so I could learn how they do that, learn how to do it, quit the job. Um, I can still make a good Dutch baby. You mentioned earlier that you worked for GoPro. I know you worked at Yahoo and Cisco Systems. So when you look back at those amazing experiences that you have, is there a moment or a story you could share with us that's helped shape your career to how you've gotten to be CIO that you can really point to? I've got a couple of people who were mentors for me. Uh, the first was a guy named Ethan Thorman at Cisco Systems. And at the time, I was very set in my ways. I felt that there were right things and wrong things. And um, you'll see from the, how the two stories are related, because apparently I haven't progressed much. But I remember Ethan walked me out to my car one evening after work. And he said, like, I'm, I just need to show you something. He said, um, 
I'm going to stand here and I want you to try to push me over. And so, you know, the first time that I tried to push him over, he stood very, very rigid and hard and I pushed really hard and I could move him, right? I could, I could move him off of his stance. And then the second time he relaxed. And when I tried to push him over, you know, he just, he just bent, he didn't move off of his stance. And he said, you know, sometimes it's a stronger play to be flexible. And, and sometimes you can actually achieve what you wanted to achieve and stay in your stance by, by relaxing and listening and being aware of the situation and responding rather than reacting. And so that was a huge lesson for me. The second lesson was many years later, um, a guy named Tony Young, who was my first boss at GoPro. And Tony had this saying, he would stop me in my tracks. He said, he would say like, you, you like to be right, right? I would say, yes, oh God, and I am right. And he'd say, well, you know, do you want to be right or do you want to be dead right. Nobody wants to be dead right. You, you know, it's okay to be right, but you know, you can give a little rather than dying on that hill. And so um, those were great lessons for me just in terms of um, listening, being flexible, and ultimately um, leading by providing clarity, not specificity. I hear the, that get a mentor, have mentors Often when I talk with people, C-suite leaders as, as yourself, um, and even people who are just you know doing really well in the industry, um, so that's something I just want to call out for our listeners that that's such a key part of of learning um, is the mentorship as well. Yeah, and you got to be really stubborn to be my mentor. You know, I'm one of the people that. <laughs> they find me a mentor. I'm like, I, <laughs> what's that person have that I don't have? You know, but. <laughs> But it's, it's these strong leaders who are like, listen here, you, you know, you need to hear this thing that's made a big difference for me. Absolutely. I want to switch gears and get a little tactical and dig a little deeper into some, some topics. I'm trying to figure out tactics. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't have to worry about tactics too much. Here I am in charge and trying to say, why did you sleep through tactics? Tactics. I read a quote from you, and I just want you to help me understand, you know, and explain it a little bit. You said it was that you were talking about a digital transformation and about how you have delivered, you, you went from delivering 15% of Nutanix's service autonomously to well over 50, 50%. Can you talk about those services, process, just really help me understand what you're, what the heart of what you're getting at there is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, the journey that got us to that point is uh, has two really important components. One is being able to interact with infrastructure as code. And the second important component is being able to use natural language processing and, and machine learning tools. But it starts by saying, what are our services and how would we like to optimally deliver those services? And so in my organization, we realized that uh, we could never keep up with just the, the pace of change, um, the complexity of the environments that we were uh, responsible for, et cetera. And so we, you know, we sort of decided to prioritize. So we prioritized um, in each functional area, you know, the top five services. And for each of those top five services, we did two things. The first thing we did was we defined the FTR for each service. And so FTR stands for first time right. It comes from the lean programming space. And it essentially says, 
if I were to deliver this service right the first time, what would be the optimal workflow involved in doing that? And what would be the optimal interaction design? And so, for example, if you think about getting dressed in the morning, the optimal workflow for getting dressed is you first you put on your underwear, then your pants, then your shirt, then your socks, then your shoes. If you got that out of order, if you put on your shoes first, all the rest is messy and involves rework. And then secondly, thinking about the interaction design, you wouldn't want to be doing that on the bus on the way to work or in the train. You wouldn't want to be doing that in a snowbank. You'd want to be getting dressed indoors in your bedroom. And when it came time to put your shoes on, you'd want to sit in a chair so you wouldn't have to hop on one foot. And so for every service, we create a regular English language description of what is the FTR for delivering that service? Not, you know, how are we doing it today, but what would be ideal in terms of operations and workflow? And then we measure every time that we deliver that service against that standard. And if we get all of it exactly correct, you score a one. If you miss even a tiny minuscule step of interaction design or operational flow, you score a zero. And so that's that's our quantitative measurement of essentially the efficiency of our work. And then over on the effectiveness side, we measure NPS for every uh, service that we deliver. And so, you know, we literally ask people who receive those services, whether they're autonomous or manual, you know, how did you feel about that? How was that for you? We then stack rank all of our services from worst to best, and we prioritize the absolute worst, the ugliest, worst, terriblest, they wish us dead every time we deliver this service service for modernization. And we modernize services in a three-month agile cycle. So we have every quarter, three monthly sprints. The first sprint is a documentation sprint. The second is an automation sprint. And the third is execution and cleanup. And so we take the worst things that are causing us the most rework and the most angst and frustration and lack of productivity in our employees, and we automate parts of those things. The last piece of the puzzle is we don't try to do monolithic things. We do very small things, tiny things. Um, you know, uh, James Clear is a very influential author to me. He wrote something called Atomic Habits, where, you know, you can make huge changes by just learning or changing or doing one small thing at a time. And so there might be something with a 55-step process that makes it work, but there's two or three steps where we struggle. So we'll, we'll automate those two or three steps as a starting point. And every time that you apply automation to something that's not working well, you reduce the amount of rework that needs to be done. And that frees up capacity, which then allows you to automate the next thing and automate the next thing. And so um, if we look at all of the work that we do, we separate it into two categories, planned work and unplanned work. Unplanned work is break, fix stuff, incidents, issues, and so on. And it's the least efficient kind of work because it's the work where we're, we're doing rework basically and we're not sure what we're doing and it's causing context switching and so on. And so we apply all of our automation efforts to that work. And today, we actually detect and address 89% of all of our unplanned work autonomously. And then a much smaller percentage of our planned work, you know, we do uh, planned maintenance autonomously, but really that we're getting the biggest bang for our buck in the unplanned work area. So literally, uh, I think we are head and shoulders above any other IT department I've heard of in terms of this very, very high percentage of autonomous work. We use a bunch of tools to do that um, and a, a bunch of other processes to do that. But that process I just described, 
that's it. That's the magic. Can you give us an example of something you've automated during the pandemic that's been a huge positive for your employees and your company? Yeah. Even if it's something small. Absolutely. Um, Our employees are in really, really mixed mode in terms of how they are accessing um, our systems, right? They might be, um, they might have been in the office one day and then the next day they're working from, you know, home and then maybe they're going and visiting somewhere for three months and, and working from there. They might be using, you know, different devices, et cetera. And so this whole notion of recognizing devices, recognizing, um, you know, new access requests, you know, it was sort of this multi-step process and people would get themselves locked out of their passwords and, you know, wait for days to and, and struggle and be frustrated. And so we just automated the process of we have this tool we call XBot. It's a natural language processing enhanced tool that, that works via Slack. And so, you know, we just interact with employees about um, access controls that way. We say, hey, you know, uh, notice you got locked out. We've reset your password. You're done. Good luck. Have, have a nice day. Right. So we just notice what's happening and, and we proactively address what's happening. And of course, we've got a bunch of cyber controls in there as well. But now instead of the employee having to say, oh, no, I got locked out. I can't remember my password. I tried three times. I got to wait an hour, like all that. We bypass that. We interact with employees and that, you know, regular English language conversation. And, you know, I, I constantly we, again, we get these these NPS surveys. Just read one this morning from someone who said, I'm so happy I could cry. Like I did three stupid things. I and I and I added a new iPhone and you know I forgot to change my password and I got locked out when it tried to, to auto-connect. And you know, I was going to the most important meeting of my life and you guys just reached out, you know, or the bot reached out and automatically reset the password. Thank you. It's those little, you know, little thing, right? Like almost no code to make that happen. But the interaction was um, much more favorable. Um, we're also doing, you know, we, we're an operating system company. So we have thousands of developers who are constantly wanting us to build custom versions of some sort of VM and some sort of cloud or our hardware, et cetera. And so um, we build all of those systems autonomously now, and we allow a lot of self-service and, and you know, for developers to, to make some real granular choices um, that maybe you wouldn't normally see in these build environments. Um, I mean, we run an Intel lab, we run an AMD lab, we, you know, we're pretty low level at the hardware level too. And so there's a lot of that, those builds that are automated now as well. How has the FTR, the first time right, how has that changed during the pandemic? You know, um, I think this is a change. I'm fascinated with this. I think this is a change that is maybe highlighted by the pandemic, but is also was already in play. And that is what I heard recently. I heard a statistic from, uh, I think, McKinsey that says by 2026, about 58% of the people in tech jobs will either be Gen Z or millennial. And Gen Z and millennial folks expect a more consumer-like, more personalized experience. 
exacerbate that with, you know, us sitting home alone in our houses, thinking about what we need and want, what makes us comfortable, which is a very typical thing for us, right? Um, and you know, I, I'm like, I'm man, I have I have my very special version of the pomegranate hint water that I like. You know, um, at work they have hint water, but they they're out of my pomegranate sometimes, and so we become very me focused, very specialized focused, and so. This is where something like automation and machine learning can bridge that gap between, you know, the five tired people in IT or the 10 tired people in customer support and very, very special me. And so we're, we're able to provide these, you know, quite personalized, timely, in line with the workflow experiences and make it feel like it's personal. It's about me. You know, I can choose exactly what I want and I can get that exact experience and that exact thing. And so I think we're never going to put the genie back in the bottle. You know, it's, it's like the example with the, with the hint water. You know, when I got, when I went into the office recently, yay them, they had hint water, but they did not have pomegranate, you know, and I kind of, I want my pomegranate. It's a little like that. We've gotten used to that even as we're working. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to you, I'm using my gaming computer because I like the, the monitor like way better. Yeah, I'm not going to bring my gaming monitor to work. And so, you know, it's that specialness um, that I think we're able to address um, electronically, but is harder in, in a hybrid or, or um, real world mode. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that idea of personalization, being really mindful of what the end user wants. I saw your presentation at Cohesion 2021 conference. You talked about A-B testing. I know the importance of A-B testing. I've done it um, when we were, when I was redoing an in intranet to help with information architecture or to place certain you know widgets on a screen. Help our audience understand the importance of doing A-B testing when rolling out something like an intranet. Like what are some must-dos and some best practices? So data is power. <laughs> data is so important. Um, I, I have, you know, I've heard many of my peers in many, many sessions and conversations complain that they, you know, can't get permission to modernize something or to, to bring some, you know, element of the company through digital transformation or, you know, they, they want to upgrade something like the intranet, but they're struggling to get, you know, buy-in or support, et cetera. And of course, we have to have good relationships and we have to um, have, you know, a make deposits into emotional bank accounts and we have to run a, a tight ship and a clean operation and all those things. But if you want to truly make change, if you tr want to truly make progress, then it helps to um, drive that progress with, with data. And so the challenge with setting up testing and collecting data is that you might discover that your you know, fondly held beliefs are untrue, right? And so I've, I think the hardest part about collecting data is building a, a fair test, honestly, because as soon as you endeavor to be fair and to be really, really fair, you know, you're, you're the, you're the ref on the field and you got a kid on each team, you know, and you're calling, you're calling the game, right? And you got to be fair on each side. As soon as you, you have that mindset, then you can, then you can create these tests. 
And then you're in a position to simply observe the results. And so we work really hard in the beginning to set up these A-B tests in a way that's fair. We talk through the test design with lots of people who have passionate feelings to make sure we've sort of hunted down and killed any bias that we had anywhere in the test process. And then there's some elements of testing that are very important. So the sameness thing matters, right? You want to create conditions that are as same as possible. If you can't do that, then you probably don't have the right test. Or you need to broaden um, the size of the test until sort of the sheer size of the data set outweighs some small anomalous differences. You have to truly observe and make sure that you're testing both the workflows and the, um, you know, the uh, lack of a better term, the emotions, the feelings about things. And so our tests that we ran, they, we tested for accuracy. We tested for um, timing, how long things took. We tested for, um, we tested the same data, the same questions for all of our test groups. And we tested across geographies and age groups. We tested new employees and old employees to try to sort of um, weed out any um, bias that we had in the process. And then we also issued NPS surveys to everyone so that even if we thought, okay, the data indicates this, if, if, if you know, people said like, yep, that worked for me, it was completely accurate and I hated it so much that I'm considering quitting. We, would, we, we need to discover that, right? Because you need the qualitative data as well as the quantitative data. And I've done this through multiple rounds um, in my career. I'm actually famous for A-B testing, Zoom, WebEx, uh, in the old days, you know, Skype, Skype for Business, Link, Teams. I always run through extensive A-B tests of, of those collaboration tools because every company is a little different and all of the interactions are a little different. And, you know, I, I would say I've got, you know, friends and, and horrified people in all of those companies because company after company, you know, the tests actually turn out differently with different employee populations and you have to be prepared for that. I want to ask one more question kind of related to all this talking about Zoom technology. Because of the pandemic and the employee experience where mostly all, you know, a lot of people are working remote from their homes, there's you know hybrid remote. But I want to talk about what you feel um, is technology's role in helping create company culture. You know, it's different when you can go in the office and the idea of the water cooler, meeting leaders, having, you know, more interactions with your colleagues or coworkers. Um, so would you talk a little bit about what you see IT's role in now that we're in the in the pandemic of creating company culture, helping shape it? So there's there's a couple ends of the spectrum. Um, I'll start with the negative end of the spectrum. The negative end of the spectrum is that you know, technology isn't a, you know, a cure for cultural dysfunction. Um, we need only, you know, spend time on, you know, TikTok or, or um, you know, Facebook to see that in many cases technology can sort of disintermediate the authority figures and reveal people for, you um, the the kind-hearted wonderful folks or the monsters that they are right and, and so um there's nothing that i can do as as a company cio 
to, um, you know, to, to fix a, a broken or a toxic culture, although I certainly have compliance responsibilities. I am responsible to ensure that uh, technology is used in a way um, that is equitable, that is, you know, fair, and that is uh, monitored. And so, you know, but beyond that, I mean, if there's something toxic and broken, for example, um, and this happens often, you know, people will say like, well, team A, is not sharing with team B. And so what we need is we need a collaboration tool or we need an intranet tool. Look, if team A and team B aren't sharing, you know, you will build for them a gold-plated way not to share um, if you build a super expensive, you know, collaboration platform. And so um, it's not a substitute. On the other hand, you know, we can be sensitive to the culture that exists and we can we can use technology to enhance and magnify elements of that culture that will help with the, the company's productivity and help with the company's desire to provide um, egalitarian access, et cetera. And so, you know, one of our responsibilities as technologists is to understand the ecosystem that we're a part of and add healthy elements to that ecosystem, support the health of that ecosystem. So a a great example there is is one of the reasons why we chose Simpler as an example for our intranet site. So we had a team of folks in the company who were sort of diehard Google users, right? They liked all of the collaboration tooling in Google and they had years of of documents and data and, you know, search and and, um, automation built into those environments. And and it was very important to them. And we had another group of users who were, you know, sort of these just diehard, like everything we do is in Slack. We're just, you know, Slack is what we use for collaboration. We love that. You know, I had a third group who were like, you know, hey, it's Microsoft stuff no matter what. And so if you think about, all right, How do you enable people in the first group to interact with content from people in the other groups? And how do you enable people in the other groups to interact with people in the first group's content without changing how they work? Because how they work is actually productive for them, delightful for them. In the past, IT has made mistake after mistake in this regard. IT will say, well, we've got to choose a standard. You know, you can't have too many apps. That's very outmoded thinking. And if I think about how I use my my mobile device, for example, um, my personal device, I have multiple, you know, apps on there, right? Multiple social networking apps on there. And I don't say like, well, you know, I'm using Twitter. And so Twitter's my standard. Therefore, I can't use Instagram at all. You know, it just wouldn't work for me. That would be ridiculous, right? I know when to use what app. And so IT needs to treat our workers as grownups, Right. Um, And we need to understand these are whole people showing up at work. They know how to use apps productively. So how do I narrow that in on choice of tools? Well, I need to find tools that have open APIs that are integrated with others. Ultimately, what I needed for an intranet is I needed sort of like that old fashioned portal idea, this idea that information is sitting where it needs to sit and in places that are productive for those who are using it. But we need to make it, you know, findable and we need to allow people to connect to it and search for it and add to it and interact around it without changing the in-place workflows. 
looking for and finding that sort of technology. I mean, you know, I, I, man, we, we looked at many, many different intranet tools and technologies until we found one that essentially uh, the, the architectural philosophy, the design philosophy of Simpler matched our own need for how we enabled people to interact around content and, and to collaborate. Um, and it didn't seek to replace the tools we already had or to be part of a larger platform per se, but rather fit into the ecosystem as a good player in the ecosystem. You've got to insist on that and look for that and understand how all those elements matter in the choice of a technology or a tool. Just, I'm just curious uh, at Nutanix, who who governs the the simpler platform that you use? We always talk about, is it engagement slash internal comms? Is it IT? Is it HR? Who owns that at Nutanix? So we have enabled every person in the company to be able to publish their own pages, to be a publisher, a content creator, to govern those, those pages and those environments, to comment and collaborate. IT supports the technology, corporate communications encourages the content. Uh, there's, there's some you know, um, award-winning content and um, they seek out interaction and you know, content creators. But I would say that we all do. I'm gonna move into our last segment, Wendy. It's asking for a friend. Who's asking for a friend? Hey, asking for a friend. So I want to start off and just say, you know, you've got an amazing work history, You're clearly very well-versed in IT, and I, I love hearing your stories. But I want to talk about non-work activities. What's a hobby or a non-work activity that you enjoy um, that makes you better your job in an indirect way, or that maybe something you would recommend for our listeners? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I enjoy challenges. I enjoy physical challenges. I enjoy mental challenges. Um, I would just sit around and do nothing unless somebody throws down. Um, if somebody says like, you know, hey, I can do this faster than you, or there's no way that you can, you know, run 200 miles in, you know, 100 days or, you know, whatever it is, um, that, then I'm in. And so um, right now at the moment, I'm in the midst of the fall pumpkin challenge. Um, and in the midst of this fall pumpkin challenge, I must bake a completely new from scratch pumpkin dish every weekend of fall. And the additional piece of the challenge is uh, these are gluten free and dairy free things and my family must love them. Um, then I have to post about it. And so, um, you know, that is taking all of the, the mental bandwidth. Um, and it's also sort of teaching me to be very structured about um, the whole process, too. You know, you've got to get the right things at the grocery store if you're going to end up with something that family's eaten by, you know, close a business on Sunday. I, I don't know if that was what you were hoping for, but it's it's all fall, fall pumpkin challenge right now for me. No, I love that. I once made a gluten-free, dairy-free pumpkin pie. Good for you. <laughs> and it was really good. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> so there's an idea for you if you need one. <laughs> <laughs> I need a recipe is what I need. <laughs> I may send you something. As a female leader in IT, 
What's a significant barrier you've encountered and how did you overcome it? I haven't encountered any barriers that were explicit to me being a female in IT. Um, I would say that um, any position in, of leadership has, you know, requires you to pass barriers um, uh, to, to reach that position. Um, and technology is one of those domains that has um, a lot of men in, you know, the ranks and in a lot of men in, in positions of authority. But I've always uh, sort of viewed that as being, you know, accidental, accidental, uh, circumstantial, as opposed to, you know, some giant plot plot that's against me. So I've just always showed up with my own interests and um, my own ambition and my own passion. And then, um, you know, try to be cognizant of someone else who's on that journey. And, and you know, hopefully that's encouraging to folks. Um, I... I will tell you, it isn't until right about now in my career, when I got into my 50s, that people started saying to me like, oh, you know, look at you, you're both female and senior and in technology, like, you know, what a snowflake you are, like, how, how on earth did that happen? And, you know, it happened kind of randomly. I mean, please don't copy what I did. Was, you, you would hate it, you know? So I would say there there aren't barriers per se. In fact, I love the way, um, the, the way that John Madden talks about these things. I think I have an unfair advantage being female, especially nowadays. You know, there's this sort of desire to, you know, hey, we're, we need to have, you know, females in leadership. We need to have females on boards. And guess what? Um, I happen to be extremely qualified. And I'm also female. Um, if that gets me in the door, if that gets me the interview, um, you know, it's it's like any other unfair advantage. You know, you know, somebody, uh, you know, I'm very happy, very blessed to be female. I will say, just recently, someone um, at work told me that she was um, she was moved to tears when she looked at my calendar, which I make public. And on my calendar, I have um, these blocks of time I call kid time, where I spend time with my kids. And she said, I never had the courage to show that. I always felt like if I ever showed kid time on my calendar, people would go like, oh, she's like a mom. And I'm like, you know, I am a mom. Like, I can't not be a mom. It doesn't make me like any less of a badass technologist or, you know, any less of like, you know, your board member who's asking you what to do. But man, I'm, I am also a mom. I'm female. I'm in love with my husband. Um, you know, th there's, we're all showing up differently. Right. Um, so I, I can't be someone I'm not. And I think that's, that's a big deal. You just got to show up and be yourself. Yeah. And I'm glad, you know, even, you know, from me, myself, when I've seen instances like that, it sort of empowers me then to do it as well. So I think that's great. And I, and I can understand where she's probably coming from to see people do that. And also during the pandemic, you know, I'll see coworkers with their babies in meetings and the little pack thing. And I love it. I think it's fantastic that we're really changing that quite a bit. You know, I remember 10 years ago, Oh, so and so gets to leave early every day because they go pick up their kids from work. That's not fair. And the whole, I feel like the, the conversation has really changed around personal life and work and blurring those lines quite a bit, which I, I'm really loving. And it's people centered now. Um, this is the part that it's, I don't think we're going to go back, especially with G, uh, Gen Z, right? Gen Z, the very, the individual generation, you know, um, it starts with, you know, 
also understanding that my interest these days is around um, productivity. Um, how are we most productive? And many, many studies show that we're most productive when we start from a foundation of happiness. And so, you know, we've got to find the environments and the work modes and the tooling and the interaction design that um, enable employees to, to be happier as they work, that reduce that friction. That's different for everyone. And it's even different for you and I, Amanda, um, at different stages in our life. You know, uh, what would make me happy with the baby in arms is not at all what would make me happy now. <laughs> right. Well, we're, we're running low on time, but I have one more question I want to ask you before you go. What do you see as the next big shift in IT over the next five to 10 years? Interesting. Um, I think that we will need to figure out effective ways to reduce um, context switching. We've broadened the, the context in which we work. And so when we're talking about not technology generally, but IT specifically, using technology to enable productive work and, and business outcomes. Um, the big challenge we have in a world that is increasingly hybrid is reducing the effect of context switching on user productivity. And, and so, you know, we have one of two choices. We can either change, you know, human physiology and, you know, human beings, or we can change how we are using technology to um, enable workflow. And so I think we're going to focus a lot on that second one because we, we can measure the effects of, um, you know, reducing context switching, reducing the hybrid tax on human beings. Um, we can measure those effects on, on productivity. Well, Wendy, this has been a lot of fun and very amazing. I am really enjoying hearing your stories. Uh, but before I let you go, is there anything you would want our listeners to know about that we didn't cover today? Um, I would say that one of the most important things these days is to understand that as knowledge workers, um, we have the ability to learn anything we need to know. You should never let um, lack of knowing something be a barrier. Uh, even if you're slower than everyone else, that's okay. It, it took me almost nine years to get my bachelor's degree. Um, because I kept failing key classes. Um, I kept having to drop out and work. Um, it, was, it was a long haul. Who cares, man? Look at me now. And so, you know, take the time you need. You have the ability to learn this. Um, you know, it's a bit of a journey. New technology will come along. Uh, there'll be new things to learn. There'll be new norms. And you know what? Um, when the time comes, assuming that you still have um, your brain, even if your brain is slower than the average person's like mine sometimes is, doesn't matter. It's not a race. You will be able to figure this out. You will find ways to learn. You will find ways to have mastery. And this is the age of knowledge workers, of disintermediation, of um, you know, reward for mastery, value for knowledge. And so you're entering an amazing, amazing time where you can show up with all of your knowledge and all of your skills and be valued and rewarded for that. Yeah. I wish we had another half an hour just to dive into that advice, Wendy. That's fantastic. Um, where can our listeners find you uh, if they want to reach out? 
So my middle initial is M. So it's a Wendy M. Pfeiffer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Wendy at Nutanix.com is my email address. But look for the M. Um, my mom's middle name, my middle name, my daughter's middle name. It's, they're all Michelle. Um, and so we use the M to identify ourselves as part of a legacy of wonderful women. And so just remember the M and you can find me anywhere. Well, thank you, Wendy. Thank you very much for sharing today um, and joining me. This has been great. Thank you, Amanda. It was a pleasure. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Cohesion Podcast, brought to you by Simply, the modern internet software that simplifies the employee experience. Learn more about how Simpler can help you build the future of your employee experience at simpler.com. That's S-I-N-P-P-L-R.com. To all of our listeners out there, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, make sure to hit subscribe, leave a review, and head over to www.simpler.com slash podcast for more information. Until next time, you're listening to the Cohesion Podcast, brought to you by Simpler. See you in the next episode.